Blog Talk Radio. Once it started as a three-day week show, 
during the day, then it became a late night show, then I think it went on, after I left, it went on to PBS. But at the height of his career, his career, and the show was about 1969 to 1972 and 73, those changing years, those socially changing years, it was a fabulous hot show. Yeah. Absolutely. You must have had some amazing guests on that show. We had everybody. Everybody that was anybody at the time in every walk of life, you know, from hot rock and rollers to um, scientists, just everything, movie stars. If you could name it and they could fly them over, we had them. <laughs> and the show was based in New York and not California? The show was based in New York, right, Broadway. We had a studio on right. Broadway. And... Without you know dwelling too much on that because that was a while ago, what were what were you, some of your favorite favorite moments associated with that show? If you could share with the audience, I, I have I can't remember any favorite moments. I had a lot of favorite boyfriends that came out from them from those shows. Really, because I was a young woman, you know. It was there, and it was the sexual revolution. It was the beginning of the sexual revolution, so life was changing out of the more conservative sixties to the sex drugs and rock and roll 70s. So beyond just who were interesting guests, everybody was interesting, you know. I didn't have any interesting moments except one guy died on camera, you know, but that wasn't too interesting. Um, It was just (laughs) years and years of interesting life, interesting experiences, interesting shows, interesting people, lots of great relationships for me and for other women on the show. And it began my career in writing, which... First, I was a secretary on the show. I came in as Mm -hmm. a secretary. It was a brand-new show. I quickly became like a junior writer. I hung out with the writers and helped them out. And in eight months, I was in the Writers Guild, and I was uh, a professional writer who had credit and who had to get paid guild minimum. And, you know, once you're called a professional writer and you're doing that kind of work, you feel that you are. So you go on to the next thing because you're not scared. I wasn't scared. I felt good. I had done beautiful work on the show. I became a comedy writer. I got laughs every single night. And so it was a wonderful beginning for the rest of my career. Oh, and then I wrote a movie about it called Fast Really? Yeah, and it was based on my life at the show. And it starred Dick Sean, who unfortunately died, who was a great comedian. And for the first appearance ever anywhere... I brought in David Letterman, who played the role of a young, unknown comedian, which he was. And I Isn't brought that funny? In, and, yeah, and it was the story about Dick Sean, who played the older comedian established, who went nuts on stage, and he left the show, and who was brought in at the end, but David Letterman, who became no the next talk show host. And it was, you know, it's what he became. It was the story of his no life. Kidding. Before that, he had just done small comedy clubs. And I mm-hmm. was looking for a young, unknown comic, and his agent sent me his tape. That's how he got on my, my uh, movie. So uh, are you taking credit for discovering him? I certainly will. I certainly should, except he didn't have a manager. <laughs> you know, he, he played small clubs. He had a manager who, um, who was Dick Cavett's manager. So that's why right. they sent me his tapes. And but he never did anything before he did my movie. Will he give me credit? David, I hope so. Okay. Officially you've discovered him then. Yes, um I did. so I have a question. 
as as uh, as you became more important in the writing team, eventually the head writer. Are, are we talking about you wrote the monologues for him, the opening monologues? No, I wrote the um, interviews. There were a group of wonderful comedy writers who, sat, who were in pairs who wrote their monologues. Who wrote his monologues. So, and so you wrote what? I didn't catch that. You wrote what? I wrote the interviews. In those days, oh, you, I, it, still, the interviews were all written. I didn't know that. From, there was an intro. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You know, my next guest is. And then you do something hip or funny or appropriate for the next guest. And they come on, and from beginning to end of those of their stay on the panel, Dick knows what to say, what to ask them, and they know what they've said. And then the comedy writers has, have already prepared a joke for Dick to say that goes on. So Dick asks a question, the guest answers the question, and Dick says something funny, if, you know, if it's appropriate. That's all written. So you're telling me that it was completely scripted. Did he ever add anything yes. to it? of course, of course as he became more comfortable and as he became sure of himself. And if he thought of it, of course he had it, no question. But he knew that if he went blank or he went nuts or he didn't feel well or he hated the guest, he still had something that would take him through and be a very good interview. So that's what we did in those days. They were fully scripted from beginning to end. And the comedy writers not only did the monologue, but toward the end of the day they would get all the interviews and they would look at me and use to see where they could add a comedy funny line mm-hmm. to, to what the interviewee had said. So then, of course, you, you, have to go to the interview, you have to go to the interviewee before the show when they're in the green room and say, Dick will ask you this, and then you tell him that. Right. And that's so, what they did. Uh, is, is all this, was all this on a teleprompter, or people had to memorize it? Teleprompter. But not all of it. So, he would read it and read it, and then there'd be key lines that he would want on the teleprompter that would remind him of it. He also has notes in his lap or on the desk. I see. I see. And are talk shows done pretty much the same way today? I don't know, but I suspect they are. Yeah. You know, he was and particularly for- smart, and he was particularly intellectual, so you had to do more work for him. But... You know, nobody's wigging it. It's just too hard to do it five days a week or any time. You have to keep right. things funny. You have to fill the space. You know, you have to keep it to seven minutes. You have to be aware of intros and outros and commercial breaks and so many things. Of course. That's, yeah. So that's it. Of course. And after your work on the Dick Cavett show, did you move to California after that? I did move to California. I wrote this movie, Fast Friends, which was about the Dick Cavett show. Right. And um, I wrote a book called A Girl Like Me, which was about me. I had, while I was at the Cavett show, I written um, about 56 pages of a book, and I got to an agent who loved it, and we got to a publisher who was interested and who gave me an advance. And so I moved to California with the advance, and wrote the book, and also wrote the movie Fast Friends, which was then became an NBC television movie. So I had the TV show under my belt, Fast Friends, and a book. Right. And after doing that, did you sort of um, switch into, how did the switch into becoming a love and relationship counselor happen? I assume that was the next phase of your career. No, I always did that alongside of everything else. I do it oh, today. I didn't know that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just began to write. I was always interested in the psychology of people and love and relationships. And um, I wrote a book with um, Dr. Pat Allen called Getting Through I Do. First I went with, to her as a, as she'd been my therapist when I was in California doing other things, writing books, writing movies, writing television shows, doing pilots. And she was my therapist. And she knew that I had, oh, I think this was after Elvis and me. And I wrote the book Elvis and Me with Priscilla Presley. Mm-hmm. That was a giant bestseller. It was on the bestseller list for 50 weeks in hardcover, 50 weeks in paperback, and it became uh, a four-hour miniseries. So when Dr. Allen, I was her analysand, she excitedly asked me if I would write a book with her. And so I spent the next year or so understanding what she was doing and her techniques and her philosophy, which mm-hmm. I believed in and then wrote um, Getting to I Do and Staying Married mm-hmm. and Loving It. And right. At, at that time, I had started to counsel people at the same time, and then <laughs> it just became another phase of my life. So I'm also a relationship counselor. And I'm available. I'm available through uh, the Internet, and it's SandraHarmon.com if anyone wants to look it up or talk to me. So I've always done that as well as writing and producing, which I did when I got to Hollywood. I started to write sitcoms, not sitcoms, I started to write pilots, and I started to produce, and because I produced Fast Friends as well as wrote it. So I got into Before we get into um, the mafia, which I know our listeners are eagerly awaiting, I would like to see if you have any advice for young writers who want to go to Hollywood, want to get into the pilot writing situation, have ideas for screenplays, any advice to to young people on their way there or already there, just starting out? You know, rejection is very prevalent. You will get rejected because that's what people don't want to spend money. So if you're very sensitive to getting rejected, it'll kill you. You have to have a tough skin if you want to be in the business because you're forever pitching your ideas to people who mostly don't want them. Right. So there's nothing else. You have to find people who are honorable, who are honest, who are ethical. Try to be that way yourself. It's a difficult business. It's very seductive. But it's hard. You know, it's harder than most businesses. And you can get hurt easily. So the advice is to have to have a thick skin. Okay. All right. For and those, talent. Uh, and li- talent. And talent. And a little bit of yeah. luck. Right, and okay. some aggression. You have to be aggressive. And too. some aggression, okay. So mm-hmm. talent, luck, thick skin, and aggressive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'd like to, if we could, um, discuss how you came about to write the book Mafia Son, the Scarpa Mob Family, the FBI, and the Story of Betrayal. Um well, I was in California, and I heard from someone who had been to see Greg Scarpa Jr., former mafia capo in the Colombo crime family, and she said that she had confidential information from him which proved that he could have averted 9-11 had the federal government believed him, but instead he was arraigned, tried, convicted, and sent off to prison for life. And the reason she sent this information to me is that 10 years earlier, I was going to do a book with his, this fellow's father's mistress, Greg Sr., who is dead, 
was a notorious mafia character who worked for both the mafia and the FBI. And because of that, I was going to write a book with her mistress, and the book never got anywhere, but I had spoken to the son, or I'd written the son, who was in prison, and so mm-hmm. she told this woman to contact me. And so she did, so I was contacted with this information that seemed very true to me. And I, I saw that this mafia man could have averted 9-11 had the government believed him or had the government cared about believing him because they were more interested at the time, 1998, in convicting the mafia than worrying about terrorists. And, so, and what yeah. information did he have and how, he, how was he privy to information that could have prevented 9-11? He was at MCC, the Metropolitan Correction something, in the city, awaiting trial, when in the next cell was Ramsey Yusuf, who had been the architect of the earlier Towers bombing. And he, knowing that his father had been an FBI informant as well, he understood the idea of double-dealing and getting information from other people and handing it off to the government. So with Ramsey Yusuf in the next cell, he made a deal with the government that if he got any information that was important, he would get a downward sentence. That's often done with prisoners, with convicts. So with their, the government's okay, and with a stenographer that would sneak in and make the of something else a few times a week, he got information from Ramsey Yusuf and gave it to the government through this, this stenographer, and not only that, he got information about certain bombs, about 2001, about what Ramsey Yusuf said was flaming bombs hitting the buildings rather than flames. He called them flaming bombs. And he got some information about bomb components like the shoe bombing, how they did that with the shoe. And so all this information became part of a government file called 302s which it translated into official information. And right. so I had, yes, so this woman had, he had given the woman, who then sent me copies of the 302s, and it was incontrovertible. I mean, there it was. The information that he gave the government day after day after day after day, and it was 9-11. And what had happened was, when he was at trial on RICO charges, you know, mafia charges, Right. told all about this, and the government, the prosecution, made people think it was a lie, that he was like a scammy jerk who had been lying, you know, just to get off, get a few years off, when it was all the truth. But of course, it hadn't happened yet. So, and they didn't care about terrorists then. They were interested, New York prosecutors were interested in nailing the mob. And right. had his story believed, had his story been believed, one of the FBI agents who was in cahoots with his father would have been um, all his stories, all the people he had nabbed would have been in jeopardy, all the cases he had built, because this guy, Greg Stokely Jr., was saying he was in cahoots with his father and he was getting payoffs and information from the mafia. So in order to protect everybody, their careers, themselves, this agent who ultimately was tried in Brooklyn for murder... And and he he didn't he didn't lose the case was the case went south 
um, they were at that point they cared more about him and less of course about Greg Jr. So he was convicted and he was sent to prison for forty years to life. And there he was when nine eleven happened. And so he was desperately trying to get this information out. And through this woman he got it to me. And I tried to get him a pro bono lawyer because he had no money. And nobody wanted to touch his case. Nobody cared. And nobody cared that he could have saved 9-11. So I decided to write a book, and that's how it began. And and that book took you a number of years to write, I assume. Well, it took me one year to investigate and research the information in order to have a book rather than just have this piece of news. So right. I had to learn about the mafia, which I had no idea about. I had to learn about the FBI. I had to learn about the district attorney. I had to learn about the Colombo family. And I had to know information from this man. And he and I began a correspondence from where he was in federal prison in Florence, Colorado, with all his mail open. So we had to do it typically through a lawyer that said he would help us. So I would send it to a lawyer, would send it to him. We, we had sort of a few nefarious ways of doing it. And I got, a, I got a book proposal, and then I got an advance from the publisher and began to write the book. So right. When did the book come out? The book came out in hardcover in '09, in trade paperback in '10, and in paperback and Kindle and e-reader and all those things in 2011. Right, and I I understand that you have um, an interesting backstory to share with our readers about the economics of writing a book, and what can what can happen to an advance quite easily. Oh, Do you well, want to elaborate on that? All, sure. First of all, since it took me a year to write the the advance, I didn't have any money coming in for an advance. So I mean, in for to live. So that money came from my savings or whatever else. So. <coughs> There it was, a year's worth of work without any payment. Then I got a $200,000 advance, and I began to write. But during that time, the information that I gave to the, to the district attorney about murders I learned from both Greg Jr. and I had learned from the mistress 10 years before, they were the same murders. I saw that I had murders that were unsolved. So I sent my information to the Brooklyn DA, because I heard they were doing an investigation on the FBI agent. And so, and not knowing much about the law, knowing nothing about the law, I asked them to have it confidential. And so, from my information and from other things, they eventually opened up an investigation and then indicted Lynn Zavecchio, who was the FBI agent in cahoots with Greg Scarpa's father and whom Greg had tried to tell about during his trial and was silenced by the government. And so, ultimately, he was indicted for murder, and all writing of the book stopped because my publisher wanted me to cover the murder trial. Covering a murder trial? When is the murder trial? So I had to stop writing and once again use my money to wait for a murder trial. Now, in the middle of it all, dig the Greg Scarpa Jr. stopped cooperating with me because he knew that I had a book deal and he wanted money. He wanted to buy houses for his family. So all of a sudden, there was no information from him. 
And so I had to make the book bigger and different, talking more about the Colombo family and his father and the trajectory of everyone's relationship. Because he was holding out for money, and I wanted him to know that I was going to do the book anyway. You know, he's in the mafia. Why should he be any different when he's in prison? It was scary for me. Then the trial was called, and I was called as a witness for the prosecution and the defense. Oh, my God. Yes, and the defense wanted all my material for the book because they knew it would help their case. Well, they hoped it would help their case. And the prosecution had had a lot of stuff because I had given it to them. And so I had to hire a First Amendment rights lawyer to protect my interests in the court. And I couldn't (laughs) cover the... I couldn't cover the trial because as a witness, you're not allowed to be in court unless you're testifying. It's another wow. year because the trial was delayed and delayed and it took whatever. Then the trial went south. I was able to, because the key witness, the mistress, she said that the Vecchio, the, the guy that was on the trial. The FBI guy. Yeah. The FBI guy was implicit in four murders. And then... Just like in the movies, a couple of reporters came into court and said, wait, we have it on tape that she said they weren't, he wasn't complicit in three of the murders. So the district attorney called the trial off. And the and guy he was never retried? He, he, it's over. He went home to his gated community in Florida. And even though there was one, there was one murder that nobody... Everybody knew that he had he was complicit in. They they just let it go, and so there was no trial, and he won, so to speak. Then he wrote a book. <laughs> Everybody wrote a book, and by that <laughs> time, you know, all the money, the two hundred thousand, that was fast gone. And by the time the book came out, from when I first started until the very day, well, there was no money left, and then I had to promote it. So. That's the story of the 200,000. And it got great reviews, wonderful reviews, marvelous reviews, incredible reviews. However, he's still in prison. No one seems to care that he could have averted 9-11, and life goes on. However, the book has been optioned as a miniseries, so we'll see. That's quite a story, uh, Sandra. Isn't it? I know. It's even worse, but I shortened it for you. Well, I'm glad because we have four minutes left in the show, believe it or not. Uh, Now, I'm going to ask you something. Uh, Is there anything you learned about the mafia and the FBI in the few remaining minutes we have that you want to share with the audience? That every organization that I've encountered, uh, they're not crooked, but they protect their own to an amazing degree. So that the police, you can't say the police are crooked, but they watch out for each other's backs, the FBI. The district attorney's office, everybody wants to win their cases, win their bones, you know, make it higher, get more money, be more celebrated, earn mm-hmm. a living better. And so people do what they have to do, what they believe they have to do to get ahead. So I think everybody's a little crooked, especially in a group. And don't anybody, you know, send me horrible letters. That's what I found. The FBI have wonderful people, but also I have been menaced by the FBI, by friends of DiVecchio who have called me and said, you know, your best days are behind you and things like that. I've been menaced by the FBI, menaced by the mafia, and menaced by terrorists. So they're all, isn't that so good in my book? What's your own back is my motto. (laughs) 
So, so do you think that? Uh, so you're saying all organizations protect their own. That's an interesting thing to take away from this book about the mafia and the FBI. Yeah, yeah, I do. That's what I think. All the all organizations, all the people in the organizations protect their own, just like religion. Right. Not that so. surprising when you think about it, you know. Mhm. And when you're inside it, and you don't know who the bad guys and the good guys, because there's some of everything in each, and the worst people, all these mafia guys that I write about, and Greg Jr., who ultimately I learned afterwards, after the book it was written, murdered 26 people. I was soon as Windsor started a book about him, if I knew that. He's a decent. How can I say this? He's a regular guy. He loves his children. He's you know, just another guy. He's not like a killing menacing person. He was his father's son. His son, his father was a mafia chieftain, and he followed in his father's footsteps. He was a junior. He was Greg Junior, and he adored his father, and he became a killer because that's what his father taught him to do. So uh, he did what he had to to earn the respect of his dad. Uh, yes, and also since he thought his father was a hero because he worked for the FBI. He did that, too. He thought his father was like Elliot Ness. He, he was a kid. He didn't know. And by the time he grew up, he just he, he would do anything for his father's respect. And his father betrayed him. That's part of what the book is. It's the betrayal of Nan's father. He got him put in prison for life and didn't protect him, and he could have. He could have helped him and didn't. So interesting. So father bet- well, it- father protect- betraying the son, the government betraying this guy. It it sounds like a fascinating read, and I recommend the book to all our listeners in the few seconds remaining, Mafia Son, the Scarpa Mob Family, the FBI, and a Story of Betrayal by Sandra Harmon. Sandra, thank you so much for being on the show. The time has flown. Uh, It's been a pleasure to have you. Good evening to all our listeners, and thank you for listening to Monergy Life. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to me. Good night. Good night.